Campsite Media. This series contains mentions of violence, suicide, domestic violence, sexual assault, and death. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Jake Adelstein, an investigative journalist in Japan. I've been reporting for nearly 30 years, mostly covering crime. Maybe you saw Tokyo Vice. That was about me, sort of. It's based on a book I wrote, which was true. The show, which is great, takes some liberties. Like, I've never had the sloppy haircut that Ansel does. In fact, I've had the same Zen Buddhist buzz cut for 30 years, and I'm shorter. Also, I did not snort meth with some sleazy fan magazine writer just to get information. I've also never fist fought several yakas at once. Never happened. Still, I've seen all kinds of weird stuff in these many years wandering around the Japanese underworld, and I've covered a few missing persons cases. But it was still a shock when one of them happened right under my nose, my very prominent nose. To start, let me paint a picture of what tax day was like for me four years ago. Sounds boring, I know, but bear with me. It's March 5th, 2018. My taxes are due. Because I'm terrible with numbers, I have an accountant and a buddy, Morimoto Taro. He's been doing my taxes for years, but this year I call him and he doesn't answer. He won't pick up the phone, won't respond to an email. And as a matter of fact, his little soccer ball profile picture on social media, that's gone too. It's like he disappeared and I have 10 days to file my taxes. That's when Steve, my American expat friend, a former security professional who terrifies everyone and who I introduced to Morimoto calls me. And I'm thinking, this can't be good. Something really shady is going on here with Morimoto. Morimoto's gone. He has disappeared. Everybody's looking for him, Steve says. He sounds a little concerned. Like, this is real. The dude is gone. And not only that, some suckers paid him in advance for the work he was supposed to do on their taxes. And I'm thinking, I am one of those suckers. So basically, I'm screwed. Morimoto has all my records, all my receipts, every file I have about how I spent money in 2018, all of which I had stuffed in a shoebox. And I didn't have any copies of it because I completely trusted Morimoto. So there we are. Of course I was pissed. I was pissed because I lost the $1,500 I paid Morimoto in advance, and it was a tremendous inconvenience, and I had residual secondhand embarrassment for the people I sent to him, who I had told, this is a trustworthy guy. Also, I was just kind of bummed and feeling let down because I considered Morimoto a friend. But life went on. I got a new shoebox. I didn't really think about Morimoto for years until 2020. It's the middle of the pandemic, and all of a sudden, this guy in America, who works for a podcast company, contacts me and says, Hey, what do you know about people who just vanish in Japan? Would you maybe want to make a podcast about that? And my reaction was, yeah, I would love to do it. And by the way, I just happened to know someone in Japan who totally fucking vanished. Morimoto. Despite what I said at the top, that I've been doing this a long time, I still felt like this wasn't a journey I could take alone. Because it wasn't just about Morimoto. Japan has a long history of people just evaporating. Poof. That's how I think of it. There at breakfast, gone by dinner. 
and there's a whole universe of explanations for it. So I felt like I needed help. Someone bilingual, Japanese, and who has at least some good, solid experience with reporting in Japan. I racked my brain for candidates and realized that the best person I know for this job has just moved back to Vermont. Her name, Shoko Planbeck. And I knew that she had some personal experience with the art of disappearing. I figured, what the hell? And so, in the middle of the night, over Instagram, I message her with the basics. And to my surprise, I get a message right back. Yeah, I'll do it. And so here I am, back in Tokyo. Shoko, what were you thinking? And why did you say yes? So I had literally just gotten back to Vermont. I was still jet-lagged. And when I saw your message, I was actually coming back inside from shoveling snow, which always makes you question your life choices. So I had made a cup of coffee to warm up. I read the details you sent me about the project, and I was just so intrigued. Here's some things that caught my attention. Apparently, there are moving companies that help desperate people escape in the middle of the night. They say, I don't need anything. I just want to run away as soon as possible. We say, okay, we'll come get you now. International abductions that sound like a conspiracy. I figured that even if the truth came out, the abductees still wouldn't be able to come back to Japan. And don't even get me started on all the crazy reasons that people disappear by their own volition and the extent that they'll go to to make sure that no one finds them. Let's face it, to live anonymously for years, it's going to take some criminal acts. I was sold. And there was another reason I felt drawn to the topic. The first time I ever moved to Japan, when I was five, was because my family was on the run. Wow, that's quite a plot twist. Why were you guys running? I can't say too much about this, but basically, my family got into some trouble and the federal government offered to put us into witness protection. We were living in a halfway house for a while and trying to decide if we wanted to go into the program or not. Because if you do that, you have to cut ties with your entire family completely. And that's not a super appealing idea. So instead, we moved to Japan for a while and kind of hid out there. And you lived in Totori, right? For those who don't know, Totori is this small prefecture northwest of Kyoto. It's really charming. It's pure countryside nestled between densely forested mountains. There's a rocky shoreline that melts into wavy golden sand dunes. There's nothing like it anywhere else in Japan. It's a magical kind of place that inspires folk tales and ghost stories, even today. One of Japan's most famous manga artists, and my favorite, is from there, Mizuki Shigeru. Mostly he writes about these mysterious beings called yokai, and their more respected god-adjacent pals, Kamisama. They're usually harmless, but they've been blamed for making people vanish in this country for hundreds of years. There's even a word for it. Yes, kamikakushi. And kamikakushi literally means... Hidden by the gods. Or if you like alliteration, gone with the gods. Kamikakushi has been used since way, way back in the day to explain why people just disappear sometimes. But the gods are still pretty busy hiding people. It's just that in modern times, we call these unexplained disappearances by the more secular term which means to evaporate. Yeah, I mean, the term exists because it turns out that people are still mysteriously vanishing in Japan. A lot. Every year, over 80,000 people reported missing. And many are never seen again. But the reasons they're going missing 
how they go missing and whether they do it out of their own will or not, that's where things get interesting. Those questions, that's what fascinated us and made us want to dive into this world. Which brings us back to Morimoto. My missing accountant. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Gone with the Gods, season one of The Evaporated. I'm Jake Adelstein. And I'm Shoko Planbeck. Episode one, The Missing Accountant. Who introduced you to the accountant? <laughs> Fingers have been pointed. <laughs> Listeners, I wish you could see how quickly they pointed at Jake. Steve and Julie have known Jake for a while, and they like him, which is the only reason that they allowed us into their top-secret office. Right off the bat, Steve told me and Tasanka, our producer, that he doesn't trust journalists. They're both in the security business, so their hesitancy was pretty on-brand. By the way, they were very insistent about not using their real names. So if you hear a word beeped out here and there, it's because we screwed up. Steve's a little intimidating. He talks like an army sergeant and has these piercing blue eyes. But he and his wife were really gracious hosts. Julie made us coffee while we set up. She was a petite lady wearing this huge diamond-studded cross around her neck. I remember she brought a Tupperware full of edamame for Jake because she remembered that he liked them. That was nice of her. That was really sweet of her. And Steve gave us a tour of the office. I've never seen anything like it before. I felt like I walked into the Secret Services control room. There's this huge monitor with a world map on it that's blinking with real-time data. Flights in motion and COVID outbreaks spreading over different regions, just really mesmerizing stuff. I don't know how many people have access to that kind of information. And the walls were lined with awards and photos of young Steve posing with lots of celebrities who you might know and I am not at liberty to name. He has a fascinating past that we are forbidden to discuss. You can draw your own conclusions about why that might be. That was okay. We weren't there to talk about his glory days. We were there to talk about the not-so-distant past. So we were looking for an accounting firm. Mm -hmm. So this is one of several companies. So we were looking for like a different accounting firm. And because I've known Jake for so long, we've known him for many decades, we just approached him and asked him on the whim one day, we said, do you happen to know of an accounting firm? And he goes, yeah, I I use this one. So then we contacted that accounting firm. And within that accounting firm was Morimoto. Morimoto was taking care of... Yeah, he was taking care of me. And he was was doing doing a great job. I mean, he was such a... Such a friendly, hardworking, mm-hmm. well-mannered yeah. kid. These guys still talk about Morimoto in such a fond way. You can tell that what happened was really a surprise for everyone, even the security guy. You know, the thing about him was, when I think about Morimoto, he's tall, he's handsome, he's a good-looking guy. He wears a suit nice. Oh, you was shaking your head, like, good-looking? I mean, yeah, yeah. Man, pretty tall guy. Yeah, tall guy. He's got everything going for him. Of course Julie wouldn't find him handsome. Steve looks like Paul Newman. Well, she had to concede that he was tall. That's something almost everyone says about Morimoto. He's a solid six feet, and that's pretty tall for Japan. It makes you stand out. It's very interesting when it comes to him. We had a very close personal interaction with him. We took him to dinner. We met his 
fiance, quote unquote. We had coffee with him, we spent money on him. It was very, very close personal interaction. And so we were really shocked when all of this came down. I also felt like Morimoto was more than just an accountant. He was a buddy. He was a good listener. When he realized I was a writer, he started reading what I wrote in both English and Japanese, and he'd tell me what he thought. He gave me a fountain pen and an expensive one. Sometimes he'd send me a story that he thought would make a good article. We'd meet about every six weeks, have a cup of coffee or lunch, and he'd go over the receipts with me, discuss politics, current events. He was incredibly bright and able to find the right category for most expenses, even a visit to an S&M-themed love hotel in Azabu. Jake, there's no way that's a legitimate expense. That was a totally legitimate expense. I was gathering information. But, you know, because I knew him and I trusted him so much, and he was so good, because unlike you, I am not organized. I may not literally take all my receipts that have been in a shoebox, give them to him and say, okay, yeah. you know, could you do my taxes for me? He actually mentioned to us about what a mess he is. <laughs> <laughs> red flag. That's a red flag. That's a, that's a betrayal of trust. Betrayal of trust. And he admitted it, you know, he confessed right now. He would get a shoebox full of nothing but receipts. And we're not like that. We're an absolute opposite spectrum of them. Every receipt, every expense. But he would often say, Jake is a real challenge because he wouldn't sort him. So his trust in Morimoto was way more than what we were doing. Right. You guys are so much more organized. You, so if there was something that was a little bit idiosyncratic, you guys would you know, be able to pick point. up on it a lot more. That's a good point. That might be another reason why he didn't necessarily target us, because he knew that we watched every single yen. Steve thinks that one reason Morimoto didn't disappear with any of his money is because he knew Steve. He knew Steve is not the kind of man you want to steal from. He's the kind of guy who might actually go looking for you and find the person who ripped him off, and then he'd rip their head from their body and kick their lifeless carcass down the road. And then maybe he'd forgive them. Well, it, it doesn't come across in a podcast because no one can see your face, but you used to be special forces and you have what they call the classic 1,000 yard stare, right? Like, I wouldn't screw with you because I uh, would be uh, afraid to walk across an open field I for the rest of my I life. I don't think so. I, you know, we took him out to dinner. We actually, met his fiance, so maybe there was a relationship there or a connection where he felt some sort of guilt mm. that he did not want to target us in any way. We would also like to say that in the case of Morimoto-san, we hold no animosity towards him whatsoever. He actually did no harm to us at all, although he, from what we understand, and I'll use the word allege because, you know, it hasn't been proven in court yet, or if it ever does, that, you know, he did cause some damage to other people. Although we don't know exactly how much damage Morimoto caused other people, we do know Steve and Julie weren't completely untouched either. After all, they had introduced Morimoto to one of their friends, and that friend ended up becoming one of Morimoto's many victims. And then I got a phone call saying, what's going on? And, of course, there was a little bit of damage there. They realized it wasn't our fault, but it kind of hurts in that respect because you don't want to vouch for somebody and recommend somebody and then find out down the road that it, it turned bad and sour. In Japan, there's a phrase that goes, shōkai no sekinin, introducer's responsibility. And we take it very seriously. 
I've been a freelancer for a long time, so my livelihood depends on it. When someone recommends me, I do everything I can to do a good job because what's at stake isn't just my salary, it's also my colleague's reputation as someone who's a good judge of people. I've obviously made some mistakes. You know, even when red flags started to pop up, when things started to unravel, we gave Morimoto the benefit of the doubt because the only thing worse than losing our trust in others is losing our trust in our own judgment. After the break, had I missed any signs that Morimoto wasn't what he seemed? This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. They all felt really comfortable with Morimoto. He knew the ins and outs of their accounts, all the quirks of being a freelancer, and expensing unusual stuff like S&M hotels. Things were going well, until Morimoto delivered some unexpected news. It was one day after we finished seeing him at the accounting firm that he worked at. We were outside and we were leaving. And he came outside with us. And he pulled me off to the side and he said, uh, I'm thinking about leaving this company to start my own company. Morimoto asked Steve if he would follow him to his new company and transfer his account over. The accounting firm before that we were with, the original one, was still treating us very good because we had developed a great relationship with them. And we were struggling between that, but we were willing to listen to what he had to say. Morimoto hopped around, so this isn't so weird. I had started with him at the first accounting firm he ever worked for and followed him to all the ones he transferred to after that. It was at least three firms in total. And that's pretty typical for accountants. They don't make a lot of money in Japan. We're talking 250,000 yen or $2,000 a month if they're lucky. So when he told me that his current firm wasn't paying him enough and he wanted to move to another company where he would have a better salary, it seemed reasonable. Yeah, it makes sense to me too. Like, good for you. You want to start your own business. But Steve and Julie weren't so sure. It seemed like there was something going on with him inside the company that he was with where he was trying to do his own thing. So whenever you have an employee inside a company or an organization that is doing that and scheming in that way to take other employees to start his own business and possible accounts that belong to that company, that kind of says there's a red flag on character issues there. No doubt about it. In the end, they did follow Morimoto to the next firm. I did too. After all, he was a friend and also a, a damn good accountant. But it turns out, not exactly a legitimate one. 
He told us, right? He told you that he had the actual license, which later we found out he did not. So he lied about that? Correct. Wow. Correct. Now, how do we verify that? That's not difficult to verify. You just call the accounting firm, you talk to his senpai or his boss, and you say, what's, you know, what's the deal on this? And later on down the road, we did verify that. He goes, no, 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 he never, he never had a license. So obviously he's trying to sell himself for more than what he is. By the way, you can work at an accounting firm without a license in the same way paralegals on legal teams assist certified lawyers. Everyone in his workplace knew he was uncertified, so he wasn't lying, at least not to his peers. I, I did notice over the years, and I wonder if you noticed this as well, that when I first met him, he was like in jeans and a polo shirt, and then gradually he was wearing nicer and nicer suits. Yes. So we know that he was living above his means by where he was living, the clothes that he was wearing, we noticed that too. There is no way he could afford this. There's just, there's just no way. His salary probably would be under what he was paying for rent alone. Mm. Think about it. Since we started on this journey, I've thought back a lot to what Steve said earlier about Morimoto trying to sell himself for more than he is. From what I've heard, he's charming, he's smart, put together, and really good at his job. He didn't have to rip people off. So I kept wondering, what did he feel like he had to prove? We knew that his fiance came from a pretty wealthy family, maybe trying to impress the family. But abruptly, that relationship ended, which was very strange. We think that the family may have done a check on him to protect her, which is not uncommon in Japan when you're, people are getting married. And they found out that he probably was not all that he was saying. Okay, this is just speculation. But what Steve says is true. One of the most common reasons private investigators get hired in Japan is so families can do a background check on whoever their child is going to marry. This practice is especially common among wealthier families. It's not uncommon at all for engagements to blow up because of what parents find in these investigations. If the family found any dirt on Morimoto, it makes sense that the marriage would have been terminated. Uh, fiance or that made me 2016. I think Good. they broke up. Whatever the reason was for the breakup, it was hard on Morimoto. He was feeling pretty down, so he turned to Steve and Julie as friends, not clients, asking if they could meet up. So now we had a meeting with him to catch up with him with everything that's going on. And we met him in Shinjuku. Seems innocent enough, right? There was just one thing. Whenever you say Shinjuku in Japan, there's a mixed emotion there a mixed idea of what it consists of. The, the fourth district, man. They're talking about an area of Tokyo with a very specific reputation. Yeah, because on the west side of Shinjuku, it's all business. But on the east side of Shinjuku, it starts getting a little bit shady, especially when they tell you to meet at a coffee shop that's right next door to Kabuki-chan. Usually people don't do that. Steve likes to use the word shady, but in this case, he's actually not wrong. Kabuki-cho, is Japan's most infamous red light district. It's been cleaned up and gentrified, but it's still a den of sin. It's an adult Disneyland where Mickey, the carnival barker, will lead you to a bar where Minnie Mouse might put a tab of housing in your drink and pile up charges on your credit card. Every single organized crime group in Japan, of which there are 23, has a stake in Kabuki-cho. It's a hotbed for gambling, sex work, drug dealing, and swindles. For $100 or less, you can legally arrange for a hand job or a blow job. And I guess now you can also watch a movie in 3D with buttered popcorn for $50, but it's still a place of odd jobs. 
What Jake means is that it's not a place where you have a business meeting unless your business is pretty dodgy or you're working with some pretty sketchy people. Steve thought right away that was a strange place for the meeting, especially since Morimoto's accounting firm was on the other side of Tokyo, which is also where he lived, supposedly. At that point, he told us he was living in Tachikawa area, which is far removed from Shinjuku. But of course, you'd go to your friend if they need help. So we went there and met him, and we talked to him for a while. But again, this was another red flag for us because we're never comfortable going down to have a meeting in that area. Mm. So there, after a meeting, yeah. he said, I have a meeting with my client. I didn't necessarily believe him on that. Because again, you don't meet clients in that area. You don't do it, especially when you're talking accounting and the nature of that area. I can just imagine Steve and Julie looking at each other after Morimoto walks out of this place. You know, just left sitting there at this Kabukicho cafe. So we were starting to think, maybe he lives around here. And maybe he's got more connection here than what we had surmised. Mm. Uh, we were pretty shocked about that. Because again, I'd never meet anybody down there. Steve suspected that Morimoto had some clients on the wrong side of the law. Which isn't a crazy thought. In Japan, most Yakuza groups have front companies and they file taxes. Organized crime is extremely organized. And so, they couldn't let go of the feeling that something was off. When Morimoto moved to the new firm, bringing their account with him, they decided to do some investigating. We then found out that Sensei, the boss of the accounting firm, told us that he was actually living in a high-rent apartment in Shinjuku. Sensei was Morimoto's boss at the time of his disappearance. We plan to try and talk to him, too. I can tell you right now that knowing him, knowing the jobs that he has, red flag, living above his means, which means, it means automatically it's debt. Steve and Julie knew that something was off about this. They continued talking with Sensei, trying to figure out what was going on. It turned out that Morimoto had actually approached Sensei and asked for help. He went to Sensei, his boss, and said, look, I'm in a lot of trouble, I need some money. And Sensei actually lent him about 2 million yen. Gone. Wow. That's the equivalent of nearly $20,000. A lot of money. But Steve and Julie weren't that surprised either. Sensei is the kind of boss who really cares about his employees and sees them as part of his family. But what he couldn't have known was that this particular employee was on the verge of causing him a whole lot of trouble. So a couple months go by. Then, towards the end of 2017, the firm gets an unexpected visitor. The one guy show up in a accounting firm. Took a quite scary face. People show up. Somebody came in and showed up at the accounting firm looking for him. Yeah, and they, they talked to him with um, Sensei. With Sensei. So the so Sensei told you that someone... Shady guy. Shady guy, looking like Yakuza, had that face. Yep. That sort of Cro-Magnon, I am pissed off face. Yes. Correct. Showed up at the accounting firm looking for Morimoto. Correct. Yeah, Morimoto was there. Wow. Let me tell you something. Wow. If a shady guy shows up where you work, and they have enough gall to show up there to go to your boss and say, this guy owes me money, you're talking a very, very dark side in Japan. These days, even the Yakuza loan sharks, some of the shadiest and least principled criminals around, do not show up at your office to collect the debt, unless it's really, really serious. And if they do come knocking on your door, don't expect them to offer you the most attractive solutions for repayment. 
the guy said, my friend, the manager of the company, like Fukushima now, like a Josen Sagyo, labor, go there and make money to pay me back. By Josen Sagyo, she means cleaning up nuclear waste. So, so the scary guy comes to the firm and he says, if he can't pay me back, he should go to Fukushima, work cleaning up the nuclear disaster, and then pay me back that way. Yeah, well, that's that's a business that the Yakuza, Yamaguchi Gumi, Inagawakai, all the groups have their hands in, in a big way. When the man hounding Morimoto suggested he work off his debt at a nuclear disaster site, that wasn't a joke. You might remember that colossal earthquake and tidal wave in Japan in 2011, the one that caused three nuclear reactors to melt down at the TEPCO facilities in Fukushima. One of Japan's deep, dark secrets is that the Yakuza have always provided labor for nuclear power plants. And since the Fukushima disaster, they've been providing labor to help fill jobs at a place that isn't exactly appealing. Those are critical jobs, though, and they need to be filled. Employees of TEPCO, which is Tokyo Electric Power Company, do not do dirty and dangerous work. It is outsourced to contractors. Background checks are not done on nuclear power plant workers. And even if they were, neither the government nor the power plant operators would necessarily exclude the Yakuza. Again, somebody has to do these jobs. You can't get a gym membership in Japan for your Yakuza or even use the public pool, but you can get a job working with plutonium. The nuclear power plant will hire anyone, no questions asked. The people at the top don't want to know, and the subcontractors don't tell them, so it works out for everyone. Even Steve thinks it's plausible that Morimoto might have been taken to work as a nuclear nomad to pay off its debts. But much later, not on that day. But the scary guy wasn't going to leave empty-handed. Morimoto was uh, wearing a big, huge, like a watch. Fancy watch. Yeah, I don't know what kind of brand. Again, over his means. Yeah. Yeah. And then the guy said, the watch, give me now. He took it right there, in front of the sensei. Yes. That, this, I, I never heard this but maybe I didn't want to hear it. There's a lot we didn't tell you. Wow. But yeah, that actually happened. So now you can see where this is going. It's going further and further and further down the rabbit hole. I mean, it's going down there. We'll hop in there ourselves right after the break. So I had no idea that all this Morimoto drama was happening. I moved my account to Morimoto's new firm, the third one he'd worked at since we first met, without a second thought. And come the beginning of March 2017, tax month, I handed Morimoto my shoebox as usual. Except this time, I also gave him my bank details. He told me, oh, you you know, in the transition period, you can just pay the money into my account directly, and then I'll take care of it. Around that same time, Julie and Steve got a phone call, and it was pretty upsetting. They found out that Morimoto was under investigation for embezzlement at the company he just left. That company's lawyer called us and said, we need to ask you guys some questions about this. Quite frankly, we denied to talk to them. And the reason why we denied to talk to them is because we hadn't talked to Morimoto yet. So we didn't know the two sides of the story because there's always two sides to a story. So we talked to Morimoto after that. We said, what's going on? He told them some vague story about how the accounting firm never paid his salary, and then it got harder and harder to get in touch with him. And when they finally did get a hold of him, he had some excuse, like being in a hospital with food poisoning. That's why I couldn't answer the phone or something. At this point, Steve was sure Morimoto was up to something. He felt obligated to make a phone call to warn Jake. We actually told you, I remember, saying that, hey Jake, 
something really shady is going on here with Morimoto. We don't know what current relationship you have with him on your accounting side, but heads up, this could get very, very serious from here forward, and you're in the middle of this, whether you know it or not. I was shocked, but before I could even decide what to do about it, Morimoto started blowing me off. For years, he had always responded right away to my emails, but his responses got slower and slower, if he replied at all. All of a sudden, we get a call from the boss of this third and final accounting firm and says, Morimoto's gone. He has disappeared because we couldn't get in touch with him either. In other words, ghosted. That's when they start their internal investigation at the accounting firm to see what exactly he had been doing mm. on the inside there. Lo and behold, they found that fraud, embezzlement, he had been taking money from the other people's accounts. Morimoto had been using the company name to get his own clients, promote himself, and he had been pocketing money meant for the firm, allegedly. This is what we suspect was happening. His employers thought that too. And of course, we were absolutely shocked. The first thing we said, like, you take anything from us? <laughs> and they said, <laughs> what we can see right now is no. He didn't touch it. Like, what? Steve and Julie were spared, but they were in the minority. I mean, as someone who has major anxiety about doing taxes, I think that 10 days before tax day is basically the most evil timing for an accountant to stage his disappearance. And if you know anything about Japan taxes, there ain't no extensions like in the United States. Oh yeah, you get penalized, man. You get penalized right away. There's no extension on the personal side or the corporate side. It doesn't matter. So people are freaking out. Yeah, but on Morimoto's end, the timing makes sense. It's accounting time. Maybe he's been able to postpone, stall, hesitate. But I think at this point he realized that there is no way that this is not all going to come out now. The spotlight is on him. He realizes he has nowhere to go. He, boom, disappeared. He was just gone. Morimoto completely evaporates overnight. Julie tried to reach out. I sent a message, nothing. No one could get a hold of him. And so Sensei is obviously extremely distressed and, and angry because the reputation of the company, his reputation, we're talking a lot of accounts where a lot of people are calling and saying, what's going on, where's my money? This is 10 days before tax day. Oh, I just felt my heart skip a beat. Can you imagine? You have a guy at your company for two months and first he borrows $10,000 or $20,000. Then some scary guy barges in, demanding money, and just grabs a watch's collateral. Then you find out he's been embezzling, and then he vanishes, leaving you with a giant headache that won't be going away anytime soon. Sensei immediately had to call all these clients and apologize, and had to go back and fix the books. And any damage that was done, any monetary losses, Sensei's company accounting firm had to compensate. We don't know how much, it's not our business. We don't know how many clients were involved or the amount of money, but they, they did it. Sensei was able to do damage control on his reputation, but the financial loss was immense. Sensei went to the police hoping to catch Morimoto, but they weren't really able to do anything for them. I actually went to the police as well. They weren't that interested in my stolen money, but they did ask me if I knew Morimoto's home address. They offered to go see if he still lived there. Anyway, I recorded the conversation in case they said something useful are interesting. Well, who else would know where he lives then? I mean, we could send someone to his place, but 
As far as filing a missing persons report, you have to be a relative or a spouse or that kind of thing. That was news to me, but it turns out that's actually how it works in Japan. Only people who are reported missing by a family member or a guardian can be officially counted among the thousands who go missing every year, at least according to the cop. That's how it is in practice. The law says differently. A social worker can make that report. Your employer or landlord or lover can file that report. But that doesn't mean the police will actually take it or investigate. There's a website from a missing person center which also warns you that the police may not accept an intimate relationship as an acceptable status for filing a missing persons report. Wow. And there's so many reasons your family might not report your disappearance, including just not having one. It makes me wonder about all the people who just slipped through the cracks. Yep. Though in this case, the police couldn't have helped much by going to Morimoto's apartment because he had really disappeared. To include disappearing from where he was living. And the guarantee company, basically the landlords, are looking for payment. And they're calling to say, where is this guy? Because he owes us money. They have these things called guarantee companies in Japan that pay your landlord if you can't make rent. But before they'll pay, they'll call up your family and workplace and ask them to take responsibility for that payment, which is how Sensei ended up with yet another unpleasant phone call. I was shocked by it. I can usually tell when someone is a con artist or a creep or untrustworthy or they're lying to me, but I'd never gotten those vibes from Morimoto, and I can't believe that, you know, I could be so wrong. To be honest with you, I was really surprised when you told me that story because I was thinking like, Jake, you're an investigative journalist. How did you not see something sus about this? Uh, I think this is a little bit of hubris here. I made a career out of having a good sense of who's trustworthy and who's not trustworthy, who's lying to me and who's telling me the truth. And so someone I've sort of put in my inner circle of friends, you know, to doubt them would be kind of like doubting myself and my judgment. After he disappeared, it just left me wondering why. You know, what went wrong along the way? He's got everything going for him, but it's always looked like he was trying to find a shortcut to get to some place that in his mind he wanted to be. And he would go to certain extremes in order to get there that caused hurting other people. But again, we believe that what set him down this path was probably death. It had to be in one way or the other. Here's the thing. If Morimoto really was in debt to the Yakuza, that's a pretty obvious motive right there. And it sounded to me like the individual who ripped Morimoto's watch off his wrist, he wasn't just a messenger. Morimoto owed him money. And if I was Morimoto, I might have run as well. Sometimes when you're completely desperate, vanishing is the only way to get away from those bad debts. I should probably mention, I still have a few contacts in the Yakuza. It's from reporting on crime in Japan all these years. So I asked a former Yakuza boss, now retired and running a benevolent, nonprofit organization, for his take on this. Satoru Takegaki was once a high-ranking member of the Yamaguchi-gumi, which is the Walmart of organized crime in Japan. The biggest, the baddest, and one of the oldest. And he used to make a lot of money from collecting bad debts. If you're the heavy, the guy who actually goes out and calls on debts, you get to keep half the money you collect. But he was logical about it. The only time I'd stop chasing after a bad loan is when the person packed up everything and ran away. That usually means they can pay. And so there's no point in chasing someone for money who has no money. That's a bad business. 
If they are that desperate, it's a lost cause. If Morimoto knew anything about the Yakuza, he would know that vanishing completely, running away in the middle of the night, may have been the only way to make his debts evaporate. And the most common reason men choose to reset their lives is because they're in serious debt. But even if we could prove that that was the case for Morimoto, it wouldn't answer how and why he ended up in that place. Nobody knows what goes on in the hearts and minds of man or woman or anybody except God. One cop once told me this. He said, you know, you can always know a crime. You can know what was committed, when it was committed, who committed it. But you can't know what was in their heart. You can't know, did they intend to kill the person? Why did they do this? Because sometimes they don't even know. The motive is always the unknowable. Cops here say you need to go back to the scene of a crime a hundred times to solve a case. I figured that by the same logic, if you're looking for a missing person, it would make sense to go back to where they were last seen. I tracked down the Shinjuku Skyrise that my missing accountant Morimoto used to live in, and the building attendant said he talked to me under the condition that I didn't record him. So, in case you're wondering, the building attendant just didn't want to lose his job. Jake wasn't allowed to record the interview, but he did furiously take notes. I guess he was about 62 and had the deep, gravelly voice of someone who smoked heavily for 40 years. When I asked if any of the building's renders had ever disappeared, he immediately knew who I was talking about. And by the way, this interview was done in Japanese like most interviews on this show, so you'll be hearing a lot of voice actors standing in for the people we interview. In this case, the voice actor has a very thick Cockney accent, just so you're prepared. I can't remember the name and I'm not going to look it up for you. But there was a tenant, a tall young fellow who lived here in 2017. Morimoto was renting one of the smaller, partially furnished units. He lived there without incident until February of 2018. There was a scary looking guy in a sweatsuit who got past security late at night, started pounding on your guy's door. Neighbors complained that I escorted the fellow out. I threatened to call the police. I think Morimoto, if that was his name, was home when it happened. And then in early March, a neighbor complained about the noise, said that he heard some commotion in the middle of the night. It's a pretty small room. It can't have taken that long for him to have moved the stuff out. But he took the sofa. It was a nice faux leather sofa, which wasn't his. There was nothing left in the room to show that anyone had ever lived there. The building attendant said everything was wiped down. Not a fingerprint, not a stray hair, not a piece of garbage or a seat. It was eerily clean. The only sign that anyone had lived there was a lingering scent of men's cologne and body odor. There was no mail left behind, and Morimoto had taken his name off the mailbox. When they tried to contact him, nothing. So the building attendant checked the security footage, and what he saw was the last known sighting of Morimoto, wearing a baseball cap and clearing out the apartment with two people in work uniforms in the middle of the night. The guy didn't own much. It only took them a few trips. When Jake first told me about this conversation, I was like, hold on. No normal moving company would help you move in the middle of the night. Something weird is going on here. I can tell you exactly what's going on. This is a classic case of Yonige, escaping in the middle of the night. I have no doubt. And the people providing that service, Yonigeya. They are essentially a nighttime moving company that will come to you at the drop of a hat and move you out quickly and quietly to a new location, like an extraction team from some spy movie. 
it barely sounds real or legal. But it is real and legal, well, depending on the company. Yo, nige, ya is a word made up of three kanji characters, knight, escape, and merchant. The easiest way to translate that is night movers, and that phrase has the right vibe. These are services used by people who are just desperate to escape from something or someone who would do anything to leave their old life behind, often abruptly. Morimoto would be a textbook case. Here's a guy in financial trouble who leaves in the middle of the night with no notice to the building and takes great effort to leave no trace behind. And he's almost certainly never coming back. One more thing before we vanish today. Some names have been changed to protect the innocent and even the guilty in this episode and those to come, like Morimoto. That is not his real name. And if you hear an occasional bleep in an episode, that's because we're protecting someone's real identity. After careful consideration, we decided that maybe we should give some of the people introduced in this podcast a second chance. And really, that's what so many of the missing are seeking in the first place. This season on The Evaporated. The older generation sees these things happening and think, well, this is kamikakushi, isn't it? Of course it is. They'll be taken away by the spirits. She was supposed to be a normal woman, happy, interested by Japan, you know? What happened? People want to know the truth. They say, I don't need anything. I just want to run away as soon as possible. We say, okay, we'll come get you now. We don't think of our work as doing something bad or as an invasion of someone's privacy. Our commitment to our clients has to override any personal qualms we might have. It was already being broadcast on TV. Megumi Yokota has been reported dead. There was nothing left in the room to show that anyone had ever lived there. One thing is I am not giving the money until we get the conversation. Get the information first, then give the prize. Well, long story short, I was once in a situation where I was abducted and kept captive for four to five years. They asked the Japanese government to test it, and when Japan did, it was the bones of someone completely different. I think to this day, the most surprising thing is that no one knows if this trace is blood, because the police are keeping silent. The Evaporated, Gone with the Gods, is a production of Campside Media with Sony Music Entertainment. It was reported by Jake Adelstein and myself, Shoko Planbeck. I also wrote this episode. Our producer is Tisanka Siripala. The executive producer is Josh Dean. Story editing by Josh Dean and Amy Planbeck. Fact-checking by Anika Robbins and Himari Iwamoto. Sound design, mix, and engineering by Taka Yasuzawa, with assistant engineering by Yurosh Jovanovic and Alex Portfelix. Additional reporting and production assistance by Himari Iwamoto. Voice acting on this episode by Morgan Fisher and Steve Lefebvre. Editorial support by Aaliyah Papes, Doug Slaywin, and Destiny Dingle. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scheer. If you enjoy The Evaporated, Gone with the Gods, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. It really does help other people find the show. And if you'd like to listen to all nine episodes of Gone with the Gods now, ad-free, subscribe to Sony Music's binge channel on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 